Hey, this is pretty cozy in here, isn't it? Not bad at all. Not bad at all. It's good to see your beautiful faces out here. Thank you so much. This, uh, you know, I didn't quite make the connection in terms of where we were going to go directionally tonight uh, with uh, this um, this song. And but before we jump into what we're going to do, a um, a friend of ours who's just part of the family here, and uh, she's her and RJ just recently were transitioned uh, down south of here toward Portland and Vancouver, and she just came up and said, you know, Lord put something on my heart, and I wanted to give an opportunity for her to share. And uh, there, are, when when someone comes and shares, they're sharing something that they believe God has really spoken to them. And the Bible talks about it being a prophetic word, or sometimes it'll be a word of knowledge. And the Paul instructs the church, he says, give words, prophetic words of encouragement, of building up, of comfort. And those are the types of things that we give to one another, because when we hear and receive those types of things, we can receive that as something directly from the Lord to us. So it's not, she may not point out, you know, hey, this is for you, this is for you. But just receive it in your heart if you feel the Lord put that, um, just impress that on you. So, Tammy, would you come up here and just share with us? It just is simple. The gentleman that got up and spoke, the word that he was sharing, there's a depth to that. You need to really take a moment and grab onto it. Because what Jesus is saying, it's a new day for you guys. It's a new day for you and you and you and you and you and all of you. It is a new day in this house. I've been away and I came back and I'm worshiping God. And I hear in my spirit and my body is saying, take off the grave clothes, guys. Take off the sadness, guys. Life is going to hit you and it is going to hit you. But there is a place that is so beyond that so beyond the circumstances of this life and that's jesus smiling what he was saying what jesus is smiling there is power in that and he wants it for you no matter what you face no matter where you're going no matter where you've been because that is a powerful tool and no man and no situation no circumstance can take from you no one can and it's time to rise up he's he's saying, come on, you guys, I love you so much. Can you see me smiling while they're nailing me to the cross because I love you so much? That spirit in me is in you, and I empower you beyond yesterday, beyond the circumstances, beyond the grave clothes, to rise up in that joy, in that power, in that anointing, and watch and see what he will do. Love it. Love it. Thank you. I'm taking that. That is for me. That is for me. Thanks, Tammy. Give our love to RJ as well. Tell that guy to get back here and visit soon or we're going to be upset. Uh, We're singing this song. You're my first. You're my last. You're my future and my past. And we've been talking, discussing uh, I've been sharing some things on forming relationships, how to form relationships that are based upon a solid foundation, the stuff that's going to last, the good stuff. 
we've been building a foundation to begin to talk and, and discuss about marriage. And you might say, maybe I'm never going to be married, or uh, I'm, a, I'm a long ways off from being married. Well, that preparation, whether we recognize it or not, begins when we're born. And some of the things that we've been talking about is to find the one. To find the one that is God's choice for us. Now, that, that, uh, the answer to that question um, is answered when we get married. When we get married, they, your spouse becomes the one. Whether we have second you know, thoughts or anything like that, that is God's choice for us. And in terms of being able to find the one, it's so important that we become the one. Now, all of us have some sort of a past. Raise your hand if you've got a past. That's right. If you're a day on the planet, a moment on the planet, you've got a past. And that is where Jesus comes in. The choices that we've made, we all can stand here and say, I've got regrets. I've messed it up. I've broken God's laws. I've, I've disobeyed Him in different areas. It's not that He just winks at those things and lets them go. There are consequences to those actions. But His redemption, His restoration, His forgiveness, His mercy, His grace, His love trumps all of those things. There is nothing that the blood of Jesus does not cover. If we don't have that hope and we can't put our faith in that, then we have nothing and we are to be pitied above all people. To believe in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, that He died on the cross, that three days later He rose again, and that He ascended to the Father. He has given us His Holy Spirit. He's in heaven. He's given us His Holy Spirit here so that He could live His life through each of us. That is the power of the Gospel. His forgiveness of sins when we repent. That is why we can sing, You're my future and you're my past. So it's not just about finding the right one, but it's about becoming the right one. I found the right one. Her name's Lisa Marie Shanklin Trout. But there's a very important part of this in terms of me becoming the right one for her. Now that's the focus. And here's one of the great pitfall, pitfalls um, where we get derailed many times in relationships and in marriage. This applies to both. So this applies to friendships. This applies to siblings. This applies to whatever. One of the great pitfalls is the demand on the other person to change before I'm willing to change. You see, this process of becoming the right one is a lifelong journey. Once you find the right one, bless God, praise God, but then there is this journey that we go on of becoming the right one in relationship to that other person. And what God does is He begins to shape us. It's called His cross, which is not easy. And He says, every single day we must take up our cross, deny our selfish ambition, 
Meaning that selfish person that's in every single one of us has to die. I hate that part. Come on, let's be honest. This is not just like, oh, hey, hallelujah, brother. It's so easy to take up this torture thing, you know, and die to myself and say, Jesus, you're Lord and you're the perfect example of how I'm to live my life and I'm to follow you. Not only finding the right one, becoming the right one, and having the right ones around us to not only find the right one, but to continue to become the right one. Before marriage and friendships and all those things, we need one another in order to help us become the right one. Dean and Sue, Don and Linda, uh, Glenn and Ruth, Lee and Louise, different ones over the years. My, you know, my friends, my brothers in my fight club, um, Todd and Todd Cunningham, Todd Emmert and Todd Cunningham, and, you know, coming alongside me, you know, and helping me walk this thing out. We asked the question here a week or so ago. We said, who's in our corner? Who's in your corner? Who do you have walking with you to help you through the difficulties that are going to come through relationships and through marriage? What does it mean to become the right one? It means a lifelong journey of becoming like Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he said, you should follow my example. You should follow my example. That sounds a bit cocky, doesn't it? Now it's one of the most humble things you could say. Listen to this next part. You should follow my example just as I follow the example of Christ. Because he says other places, he says, not that I've got it all together. I don't have this completely figured out, but where I am following Christ, follow me. Follow my example. John 13, 13 through 15, Jesus, our Lord, the leader of the movement, the myth, the legend. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because it is true. And since the Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. He had just gotten done talking to his boys about servanthood and how to relate in relationships with one another that applies to every relationship, every friendship, every marriage. How to wash one another's feet, which means to serve them, to lay your life down for them. Here we have the creator of the universe getting on his hands and knees, washing the funk off of these guys' feet. Sandals that have been stepping in all kinds of stuff. A lot easier said than done. He goes on, he says, Jesus says, I have given you an example to follow. This is how you become the right one. Now do as I have done to you. Well, we get a really cool privilege tonight. And I'm going to have a number of people come up, a number of couples come up and share with us some gold. Some gold from their experience in their relationships, in marriage. Why, why do we spend time talking about marriage, training on these things? It's, it's one of the most important foundations of culture, of family. It's so much a representation of Jesus and His bride. And in Ephesians 4, it says that Jesus gave these gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. 
And they're all sitting out here in certain representative form and in different measures in every single person in here. Whether you serve Christ or not, you have these gifts within you. There's apostolic gifts. There's prophetic gifts. Chuck just came up here. Tammy just came up here. Prophetic gifts that are gifts to the church. Evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That's not just the person up here who's got the mic all the time and all that. These gifts are resident within all of us. They need to be developed more and more. But it says here, it is their responsibility to equip God's people to do God's work and build up the church until we come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature and full-grown in the Lord, measuring up to the full stature of Christ. So, first ones that I want to invite up here to help us grow and mature in the Lord and learn and take these things and apply them to our lives, I want to invite Lee and Louise to come up. And uh, Lee and Louise, you guys have been married for how many years now? Fifty-five and a half. This is great reason to celebrate, but they've got a few things here that they're going to share with us as well as some other couples. Thank you so much for being willing to um, not only live the life because um, the example that you set for us gives everyone in here hope because I know that 55 years doesn't come easy. (laughs) And so we thank you and we just want to honor you for following God, for trusting Him, saying yes to Him when you wanted to say no. So thank you. We love you guys. Thank you. They asked us, they asked us in the beginning to ask what made our marriage strong and what, you know, what kept us together. Well, I can say there's just something that kept us together. We had to stick together and be a twosome because we had to raise Lauren and Linda. <laughs> That was a job. <laughs> How many of you heard this saying by a famous person, uh, what we do, we do together? Yeah. Anybody recognize that term? CCK, James T. Hammond. Uh, he ingrained us in that road quite a while ago, if I remember quite correctly. But that's one thing we've been trying to do. We do what we do, we do together. Uh, if you ever see Louise and I, we hold hands a lot wherever we go. Uh, some people, we got stopped on one of our cruises one time by some giggly teenagers, probably about, what, 13, 14 years old. They were, we were walking on another cruise ship that night, at night and uh, going down the main plankway there. They were saying, they were giggling behind us, and they said, uh, can I ask you a question? He said, you know, sure. What? And he says, do you guys always hold hands? And he says, yeah, yeah we do. And he says, how long? He says, 55 years. And they could not get over that. Just the, uh, this, the uh, example that God has given them before them. I think the business of doing things together is, is so very, very important. And I think we can all say we do things together. And we do it at different ratios it isn't all the same we always go to bed together 
He doesn't go to bed, and then I an hour later go to bed. We always get up together. It doesn't matter. All of our married life, he's either gotten up between 3 and 4.30 in the morning. He's never had a later shift. And I always get up with him because I want him to go out the door seeing someone that is dressed and ready for the day, not someone that looks like they just got out of bed. (laughs) So I get up and get ready for the day, and we do it together. We've done dates all our life. There was times when the kids were in high, junior high and high school, when life was so busy, we had to get away. So we would go once a month to a hotel. And we were so broke in those days, we had to stay in Motel 6 and take a crock pot dinner to eat because we couldn't afford to go out and cold cereal for breakfast the next morning. But I remember a time when he didn't have a time to go out that month, and he canceled a reservation on something else that had to be done in order to take me out for that one-night date. And that just elevated me tremendously to realize he cared that much. And there was once in high, when Lauren was in high school, I asked him one day, I said, our month is up already and we're going out on another date. Do you mind mom and dad going out once a month? There's only twice in his life that he turned on me. But he turned on me at that time and he pointed his finger in my face and he squinted his eyes and says, Mom, what do you think makes your marriage so strong? (laughs) What we do, we do together and we do it often and we set a time to do it. We don't just, well, if it happens, but we set a time. So togetherness is really important. Uh, One thing about life and marriage, as long as we have, you're going to find changes. Uh, we, uh, there's always room for change. You know, you, sometimes you think you've got it all together. We've been married a few months, you know, and the, everything is just fine. All of a sudden there's a bump in the road. What do you do? You learn to change. <laughs> That's right. And, and in lives, we change our personalities through the years. I'm not the same person I was when I was 20 and 30. And he has been willing to float with me and change with me. I've been trying, willing to float with him in his change of personality. And especially the last two or three years as I have been ill so much, his personality has been one that has been so willing to change, to cope with me and to be patient with me and to lift me up and not let me feel like, are you sick again? He's never done that, but he's been willing to float. You know, when you are first married and before you have your first child, you think everything is just perfect. And you bring that first child home and your life changes. And it'll never be the same. And that's the way it is in all through life. There are changes. And are we willing to float with those changes? Are we willing to change our personality to meet what they're like now? And that's, that's what we have tried to do. And I've seen it so obviously in him that he has done that beautifully. When I first met my sweetheart in Bible college, uh, 19, I'm telling you my age here, 57, 58, that's a long time ago, uh, she had to learn to love sports. <laughs> she, <laughs> and she did. She really, I want to commend her on that because, you know, some, some people don't like to change in that regard, but she did. And she's become a real help me in that, in that area too. I, I can remember where I was. I was sitting on a bus through driving, riding through Seattle, knowing if I was going to marry this guy, I had to learn football. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that we really have to learn, uh, and we have learned, are still learning, 
And that's a process of forgiveness. That's critical, guys. It is critical. I can't emphasize that enough. The the idea of holding something inside of you, it'll eat your lunch. Let me tell you, it will. But forgiveness, we never, I think maybe once in 55 and a half years where I went to bed and I've carried something overnight, I paid for it. I paid for it literally myself. It will eat your lunch if you don't. The more you hang on to it, the bigger it becomes. So learn to be a cheerful forgiver. Sometimes it's not the easiest thing to be cheerful, but learn to be a forgiver. It is so huge. It is so huge. I can't stress that much enough. First Corinthians 13.5 says, Keep no record of wrongs. Oh, we can forgive, but we remember what happened then. And we have to really take that verse to heart and really do it. Keep no record of wrongs. I remember one disagreement that we had. We were in the kitchen and I was cutting your hair. And we were still discussing this disagreement. And it really, we weren't heated. We weren't yelling at each other or anything like that. But we were really discussing this issue. And I remember I said, so... And Linda spoke right up and says, you're not getting a divorce, are you? You're not getting a divorce. <laughs> and I, it made me thankful that our home was one where we had learned this, not keeping record of wrongs and being quick to forgive, because that was the closest she had come to anything in our lives of a disagreement that way, that she was sure we were going to get a divorce. Scripture also said, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Critical, guys. It really is critical. Our last uh, point of view is prayer. You have to learn to pray together. That's one thing I've faithfully tried to do through the years is before I leave for work every morning, I pray over my wife. I pray over her. There's been a few times that I've forgotten it. I'll let her tell you about that. (laughs) Well, he called me from work one day, and he says, Do you realize I forgot to pray over you this morning? And I was crying and saying, yes, I remembered. (laughs) And he prayed for me right over the phone. It's that important that we pray over each other. And I, I, I relish the covering that I feel, the security that I feel, knowing that not only my Heavenly Father is covering me, but I've got a husband who has covered me through all of this. Linda, I remember your and Dennis's words of let kindness never leave you. You had that right from the beginning of your marriage. And I think that in all that we do, if we will just line our lives up with the scripture, let kindness never leave us, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. There's all these scriptures. If we will just be scriptural, we'll have a happy marriage. Be kind. And be compassionate. That's that's critical. When your sweetheart needs compassion, give her to her. Don't give her judgment. Sometimes you like to do that, but don't do that. Can I just say one more thing about him? Can I brag on him while I'm up here? And that is, he is one that has always had such excellent manners. He always helps me in and out of the car, opens the door for me. He'll help me on with my coat. When we walk down a sidewalk, I don't know if you've ever noticed, maybe we haven't walked on sidewalks where you've noticed us, but he's always between me and the traffic. He's never on the inside. 
And when we get to a crosswalk, I love it. I love it because when the light turns green and it's time for us to cross, he'll be between me and the traffic until we get to the center line. The center line, the traffic's coming the other way. And he always goes behind me and gets on the other side of me between me and the cars as we cross. And I I just want you to know how much I've appreciated that. She's a sweetheart. (laughs) Wow. Anybody get any takeaway right there? I uh, I don't see him. Kevin Bradford, Kevin in here. He may have just slipped out. I had asked him and Catherine to share. Uh, Catherine works every other weekend and uh, at Evergreen Hospital, and she wasn't able to be here. But one of the things I wanted her to be able to, them to be able to talk about is those times and seasons of separation. And um, you know, there's. We're all going to face levels of disappointment and discouragement. And when Kevin was deployed in the Marines, he was overseas and in California, different things while she was here. And that happened right after they first got married. And they've got a real testimony story about what God has done in them and through them. I know it'll be really encouraging. We're going to have them share at some point. But um, in terms of... Um, dealing with disappointment, discouragement. You know, we we go into marriage hoping that it's going to be a certain way, and it very rarely turns out just like we think it's going to be. And I've asked John and Rachel Nystrand to come and share some of their story with us. Come on up here, you guys. And... And uh, when... Before they... You know, I, I think most couples have a hope and a desire to be able to have their own biological children. And um, John and Rachel, that hasn't been the case for them. And they've gone through the process of adoption. They have these beautiful children uh, from Africa that they've been able to adopt. And so I've asked them to come and share with us their process because I know we can all glean. And it, they, you may not have experienced this specific situation of disappointment um, in terms of what you thought it was going to be like, but you can apply the same principles to your own relationships and marriage. So. Uh, I'm just going to comment on Lee and Louise really, really quickly. I uh, uh, all I figured out is I'm a piece of work. Not, not so. Thanks for showing us the way, and I got a lot of work to do. <laughs> That's a hard act to follow. <laughs> It'll be 15 years in September. So we're we're babies compared to Lee and Louise. <laughs> So, um, yes, we got married in the year 2000, and a lot of our um, close friends got married in the year 2000 as well. And we got married a little bit later in life. I was 29, and John was 33. 32. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. One month shy. <laughs> um, and so we... We got because we got married a little bit later. We were really ready to have children right away. We didn't have any intention of waiting, 
we thought we would get pregnant right away. And that was not the case. Our, our friends that got married around the same time as us, they all started having children right away, one after the other. And, um, and so the, the waiting got harder and harder for us. Um, we, um, somewhere along the line there, I think maybe about five years into it, we, we, we did see infertility specialists and the, the diagnosis was there's no reason that you can't have children. Um, and so that, I think in a way that made it harder because we, it would have been, I think it would have been easier if we would have had a final answer and we could have just moved on. But we always had this glimmer of, of chance. And, and so just working through all of that together and individually um, came with a lot of challenges um, that you can imagine. Um, and if you're here tonight and you're single... I apologize if it's uncomfortable to hear us talk about infertility, but I just encourage you to just put this in your backpack for another time because you may need to pull it out later in your life. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit about the, the emotions that went along with all of this and, and how... Um, how John helped me walk through that. And um, this this is a very hard topic that <laughs> Eric asked us to share about. Um, I hope I I hope you're able to um, learn from our process. Um, so this this went on for so many years that it almost it almost became normal <laughs> it's like something i'm going to have to live with always and um i'm sorry i i'm just feeling really jumbled <laughs> um <clears throat> yeah so what I want to share is that I couldn't stop living. So I had these close friends who were getting pregnant, having baby showers. Um, one really close friend wanted me at the hospital with her when she was having her baby. And I couldn't just withdraw from all of my friendships. And so I, I called on God for the strength to do that. And I kept reminding myself, one day... It will be my turn, and I will want all of my friends to rejoice with me. And so I am making the choice to rejoice with them. So I would go to baby shower and another baby shower and go to a birth. And I would go, and I would truly, by the Lord's grace, be able to rejoice with them. And I had, I had really good really good friends who were supportive as well. They knew I was struggling, um, and they were very supportive. I, Looking at Sue here, I remember Amy, Amy Wellump coming to me one time when she was pregnant with her fourth or fifth, 
And she came to me in tears saying, Rachel, I'm almost afraid to tell you that I'm pregnant again. And she was <laughs> concerned for me. And that, that, um, that just really, really blessed me that we as friends can support each other in, in all of our processes of life. But I would go to these different things, and it would drain me emotionally. And I would come home, and I would be, have felt like I had given everything I could possibly give. And by the time I came home, I would just be very distressed and usually would just go to bed. And John would come into the bedroom and just pray over me while I'm just crying. And... Um, that was one thing as we look back on is that John didn't expect me to just put on a happy face and and vice versa. We would support each other in in the grieving because it really was like a death every time. And as I said, we did go through infertility treatments and testing and we did a couple of different things to help us get pregnant, and three different times it it didn't work. And so each of those times was just one more time. It just got harder and harder. Um, And it came to the point where um, we, we needed to just discontinue those treatments. And that was kind of like the final... Thing. Even though we didn't have a true diagnosis, we never had anyone say, you can't get pregnant for this reason. Um, in our minds, it was final, and that was around 2007, I think, and we just began to look to the Lord for how he would want to build our family through adoption. Um, so... Through, through all of this, this season of Hope Deferred, um, there were some scriptures that I were my anchor. And to this day, they are really special scriptures to me. And that is what saw me through. And that is what kept me from falling into self-pity or deep depression. It kept That's what those nights when I would come home just emotionally drained, these scriptures are what would help me get up in the morning and keep going. And so I wanted to share those with you. The first one is Romans 5, 1 through 5, and this this one was the absolute key. It says, starting in verse 2, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I would meditate on this scripture for years. I just meditated on this scripture, and I stood on the promise that what we are going through year after year is not for nothing. What we're going through right now, the suffering that we are feeling, is for a purpose, and 
it's producing something in us. And the, the, the characteristics listed in this scripture could not, could not come to fruition in our lives without the suffering. And so that would give me hope that the suffering, God is going to use this suffering to produce in me endurance, to improve, produce in me character and hope. And not just any hope, but a hope that does not put us to shame. Wow. So this is my favorite scripture ever. <laughs> and then the other one was uh, the story of Hannah in First Samuel. And I'm, I know all of you are familiar with that, that she cried out to the Lord for a son. And I would read this, the first chapter of Samuel over and over and over again because I could relate to her so much. And that the Lord had closed her womb. And it says in verse 7 that it went on year by year. And, in, and, and that Hannah wept. She was deeply distressed in verse 10 and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And, and then how she went to the temple and she prayed and she was willing to pray publicly. And I know we went, we went up for prayer often. And so it was at Christ Church Monroe where we attended before here. Everyone there knew what we were going through because we, um, we didn't, we didn't share all the details of what we were going through at the time, but everybody knew we were crying out for a child. And, and then in verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. And so um, I use these scriptures to remind myself of the promise and to, in the midst of the suffering, that I, would, I refuse to give up on the promise that God would give us children. And John wanted me to share one more thing. Do you want me to share it right now or at the end? Um, when, when John and I were discussing this the last several days, how, what we wanted to share, he asked me if I, if I wished that I could have carried children in my own body. And I said, well, a few years ago I would have said yes. I would have still felt the loss of not having had that experience, but I don't feel that anymore. I feel like I only wish I could have carried Elisha, Cassia, and Anna in my tummy. (laughs) I don't feel like I've lost anything. I feel like God has given to us tenfold by giving us the three children that we have because they are incredible. But it's been a it's been like a twelve thirteen year process to get to there. Well, I'll uh, try to be try to be brief and get right to to uh, my end of my end of the deal. She uh, <clears throat> is a whole lot more spiritual than I am. How's how's that? And, uh, you know, I can give you a lot of religious mumbo-jumbo, and, and I think a few years ago I probably would have done that. You don't need religious mumbo-jumbo. You need, and I need, reality. And uh, 
you know, through my praying over her and, and that sort of thing, um, there was also a wrestling inside of me that was sinister. I'll use the word sinister. And the verse, man, man plans his course, but God directs his steps, was a verse that I was trying to process. I can tell you that till I'm blue in the face. Man plans his course, but God directs his steps. And here, here we are. Here I am, looking spiritual before you. Uh, I was trying to process that. I didn't do it real well. I wanted to plan my course. I wanted what I wanted. We wanted what we wanted. I think there's people out there, there's something in, in all of us uh, that I'm not alone in the sense of there's something sinister out there for all of us that we face, thought processes, things that are devious and hellish. If we're really honest, and um, by the grace of the Lord, she's telling you the good part. But our, we really were at the brink, maritally. I mean, that's just let's tell it like it is. <clears throat> um, that movie that Frank DiCaprio made that you have seen called It's a Wonderful Life. Most of you have probably seen it. Maybe some of the young ones haven't seen it. How many people have seen that? I'm just curious. If you've seen that, can you raise your hand? Hi, I just want to know who, who, okay. It's a wonderful, if you haven't seen that movie, I would highly recommend that movie. Um, George Bailey, there is something sinister at work in him, Really? And it was the belief that God was not good. He wanted to go off and do his own thing. He wanted to um, see the world. He wanted to, you know, um, get out of get out of Bedford Falls. Um, you know, and we have believed the Lord for for children, and um, I hate entitlement. I can honestly stand before you now at 47 years of age and I, I can literally say entitlement is from hell. It is from the depths of Sheol. And um, at the end of that movie, George Bailey had a light bulb experience which happened by the grace of God in my life and in our life. And he said that he's the richest man in town. 
the um, I think what Pastor Eric has been talking about in regards to the goodness of the Lord. Uh, what did What did Oswald say? He said that the root of all sin is the is the suspicion that God is not good, not the belief. It's just the suspicion that God is not good. Um, that is a big deal. And I'll end with I'll end with this. I believe our life verse as a couple was for the Lord is good and his love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. That's our life verse. It's Psalm 100, verse 5. And that has been the utter truth. The Lord has restored. The Lord has done a miracle. The Lord has um, brought us before you on March, what, 14th, 2015. And it's pretty miraculous that we're standing right here before you. I mean, it's... um, Whatever your your situation is, whether it's what I mean, seriously, man, my dear brothers and sisters, I believe the Lord gave this to to me for us. It's not just recognizing or embracing His sovereignty. Embracing, you know, we work that thing up. We. Oh, I gotta choose to do this. I gotta do this. I gotta do this. I gotta do this. I gotta do this. Although that is definitely part of it, we do have to choose. We have to make a choice. But you know what'll happen? I believe this, and may this minister to you. It's not just recognizing or embracing his sovereignty. What happens is you will come to a point that if you do it, you will enjoy his sovereignty. No matter what your situation in life, no matter what the Lord brings your way, whether it's sickness, whether it's infertility, no, whether it's whatever, if you embrace um, and and recognize His sovereignty and process it, and I will say this: wrestling with the Lord, I think that Jacob did it, and there was benefit from wrestling. Um, you might say, wait a minute, benefit, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, I think we all have to wrestle things through. Does that make, does that make sense? Okay, so I'm scripturally in the, in the right ballpark, hopefully. Um, but um, you don't want to go farther than that. If I could tell you that, you don't want to go farther than that. And... Uh, the Lord's been working in my life. Even I, I, my uncle Dave and my my dear Aunt Ida celebrated their 65th anniversary, and they, I have I have heard people say I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've I've He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my friend. He's that. I've heard Lord Jesus, God, all these different things, and He said this at their 65th and he gave a testimony about his about his life he said when i met the master and i've never ever heard anyone say when i met the master i think that's what the lord is is uh, is brewing in uh, in me it's a beautiful thing him being master i wrestled with it almost 
to the brink. And I admonish you. And I love you. You don't want to do that. Amen. Guys, thank you for... Um, you can obviously see the the challenge that um, those things can be to share in a vulnerable way that way. And I've asked uh, one other couple here to come up and share, David and Katie Struzeski, and I posed this to them. Just what are the keys that you've discovered to developing good communication in marriage? In any relationship, the keys to communication are so important. You know, these guys, uh, we had Lee and Louise talk about those things, touch on those things. 55 and a half years. How many years now? Four, four years. So you're going to get a four years perspective. and But that's nothing to, you know, to scoff at at all. Um, there's, there's great things that we learn. And I, the other thing I asked was, are there things prior to marriage that helped you become better at communication? And if you could go back and do it again, what would you have worked on to more prepare for marriage communication? Uh, in those things that would have prepared you better. So, David, thanks so much. I've been held to a strict five minutes. <laughs> so my, my better half, Katie, is pregnant, and it's her brother's 30th birthday. So she's uh, sitting down someplace at, uh, at that birthday party, so I thought I'd come and share. So um, uh, communication really is the lifeblood of relationship. I mean, it really is. It's the lifeblood of relationship, and... Um, I, I don't. I'm not here to tell you that I'm. I got the corner on any of that stuff. There's a couple of things that I, I got tonight to share that I think are, are very valuable. I mean, I wish that, like we've seen the Matrix. You know, we had those ports in the back of our head that we could just, you know, upload and know something. I wish I could understand women and how to communicate to women as a guy. Right? Come on, get a witness. No, it's true though, and um, and we all have different communication styles. The, uh, the family that, uh, that Katie came from had some severe trauma. Uh, her father passed away a long time ago and uh, when she was in college. And um, as a result of some of the things that they went through, they got a lot more passive in some of the communication things and addressing things in their family. I came from a family where we were more aggressive in our communication styles. And you could get loud and um, you hash it out. And uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's intense fellowship, all right? And, um, and so we came from a little bit different backgrounds uh, in our relationship. You know, when we first knew that we liked each other, we entered into this process called a courtship, which was essentially just a set of boundaries that we intentionally put on our lives and on our relationship. So how do we come into this thing, right? Well, it's we set ourselves up to say, you know, we want to get to know one another verbally and by communicating because this is like the number one muscle you have to have in a relationship in order for it to be fruitful is this communication thing. And... Um, and so we were very fortunate to have some wonderful uh, uh, guides through that process and people that walked with us that were in our corner that helped us to, to, to learn how to say, you know, what's in your heart? What are you looking for? What, who are you? And, and we got to grow through that process, and ultimately it led to, uh, to marriage. But it was a process of engaging relationally rather than physically. 
if you can understand that there's two different sides to, to relationship. And so we got to say, I love you with words and learn to communicate the, the things that were in our heart to one another uh, in a very, very awesome way. And uh, uh, so that was great. However, that prepared us uh, for marriage. Let's just be honest here. Uh, everyone has intense fellowship at different times in life. I don't know if it's, you know, we're just hungry or tired or cold or whatever it is. Some days in our lives, there are these breaking points. There are these moments where we get to these places and it's like, you know, what are we really standing for? And so here's a couple of keys that Katie and I got kind of in that process. And, and we, I just always wanted to communicate, babe, we're on the same team. First and foremost, we have to understand in communication, we are on the same team. And in relationship, this is critical. I mean, even if we're thinking about our relationship to God, and it's like, you know, He's not just against us for our sin. No, He's on the same team trying to make you right, trying to get you into the place that we need to be. Our sin is what separates, and that's the stuff that breaks. And it's like, as the guy in the relationship, the other part that I really had to learn was, it's like, you're a covering, You're the leader in this thing that's accountable before God for how you carry it, what you do. You have to humble yourself. And it's so, so, so difficult when you think that you're right. And even though you think, gosh, I just have a speck in my eye on this deal, and there's a plank over there, it's like, you know, we all know the verse. But here's the reality. You have to address your your, your speck before the plank would even be acknowledged. Right? And so it's like, this is a humbling process. And I love just that what Eric had said. I think he's used it twice now in messages. You, we have to become uh, the, the person that is the one. And, um, you know, and, and it's like right now for young people, I just encourage you in this. How we relate to our parents, uh, how we relate to our teachers, how we relate as we're driving down the road to people that cut us off or are, are aggravating us. How we relate to the cable guy who shows up late. Whatever it is, these are relationships in our lives that are giving us the ability to uh, use some muscles uh, which are called restraint, which are called how to effectively communicate what's inside of our heart and not just blow up and not blow our witness. And, uh, and so it's not easy, but, uh, the goal is that, uh, we, we want to be, we want to be the Lord's. And, uh, and so that's my encouragement. You know, we have to look like Jesus. We want to look like Jesus. That's the intention of all of us. Hopefully if it's not, we can talk about that after we come up for prayer, but, uh, uh, no, but, uh, the enemy wants to rob you of your peace. And if he can rob you of your peace at home, if he can rob you from your peace in relationship, you will not be effective in the world. Amen. Period. If it ain't strong there, you will not be effective out there. And, and that is the enemy's biggest thing, is just trying to get at us through relationships. And it's so interesting, too, when we get to the hardest places in life, our natural thing is, oh, I just want to shut down and go and be alone and just kind of sulk or, or go through these things. When that's the exact opposite reality that God wants us to be in, He wants us to engage in relationships with other people and, and let, allow others to bring us back up and allow others to speak into our lives and walk with us through some of these things. And so, um, yeah, I, so I wish that uh, uh, I had more time or more things to, to kind of lay it out in a different way, but uh, uh, we just need to be committed to love. And, uh, and love is, 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 is what it's all about. And, and that's going to be evident through our witness. And so, um, 
Yeah. Forgiveness. That was a huge one too. I think Lee and Louise said that. Man, you have to be a good forgiver. And uh, uh, it's not about being right. It's about, uh, it's about walking together and being a team. And so, there you go. Can you guys stand with me? I just am so grateful to um, to all the couples that shared. You know, you don't you don't get these types of things without. There's an immense price tag that is associated, and we wanted to be able to provide a spectrum here of um, many years to a short amount of years in the gold, and we could have so many different couples come up here and share. Um, whether you've been married for 65 years or, you know, you've been divorced and remarried or whatever, there is gold that God has given you in the journey that you've been on. And again, the importance of remembering God's redemption, His restoration, His forgiveness in all of those things that we walk through together. So, Lord, we just give you our preparation wherever we're at in life. Um, not only for those who are yet to be married and it's your desire that they would be married someday, we just release your grace over them to become the one, to get those around them, to help them find the one. Lord, thank you for your church, your family that you've given us uh, to be able to walk this thing out together. Lord, help us admit, say, hey, I need someone in my corner to help me to walk this through. Jesus, you're the best. You paved the way for us to be able to experience the best life possible. Not one that's free of pain, not one that's free of suffering or anything like that, but you're with us every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've got some uh, wonderful things.